stop and say, Father in heaven, thank you again that you are a big God. Thank you that you have the power to bring down walls, whether it's back in Joshua's time or in our time today. You still have that power. Bless Lester as he brings what you laid in his heart. Uh, to his own church with you. Greetings in Jesus' name to each one of you, and welcome. Because we just sang that song, uh, gives us that, that picture of, of a warfare of walls that need to come down. My message is, is uh, maybe connected with that in some ways as we think about the spiritual battles that the spiritual battle that we are in today and that we are called to fight not literally like Joshua's day of, of actual city walls coming down but there's strongholds that we uh, do need to fight against and that's a little bit what where my thoughts are, are going this morning for this message I'd like for you to turn to Matthew chapter 12. I want to read verse 43 through 45 here. A short um, description here that, that Jesus gives of some of what goes on in the spiritual realm. This might be a subject that we tend to avoid talking about very much. It's for one reason it's, it's difficult for us to understand. It's spiritual. We can't see it with our eyes. It's not so much material things, but I, I hope you would agree with me that, that it is real. There is a spiritual realm. There is a warfare going on there. Uh, let me read what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 12, verse 43 through 45. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. When he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. In looking at these verses, I realize that what Jesus is saying here is, is not a parable. It's not a story with some um, hidden meaning or... or um, yeah, something that we need to spiritualize, but he's, he's actually describing what goes on in the spiritual realm. This unclean spirit was dwelling within a man and, and was, was put out of that man and then came back in. And the spirit says, I will return to the house from which I came. That house is referring to that man, that dwelling place where that spirit was and returned to. And this is a sobering verse to look at because we realize that the last state of man can be worse. Um, Jesus is here actually talking to the scribes and Pharisees, referring to them and saying this wicked generation, the last state will be worse than the first. So, so it's, it's giving us something we should be concerned about, a, a warning here. And um, in order to understand what, what he really is referring to here or, or what the warning is to us, I think we need to, first of all, understand some of the principles that, that 
are in place that the scripture does give us of, of how the spirits operate, both the spirit of God and the spirits, the evil spirits of Satan. From the very beginning of scripture in, in Genesis, the second verse, it already mentions the spirit of God. And, and all throughout the scripture, there's so many different passages that describe to us um, parts of the spiritual realm, of what goes on there, of what is the spirit of God, what is his work, uh, what, is, what is he doing, where does he dwell. And the same with Satan and his evil spirits. What is their work? What are they doing? What is their mission? All the way through Revelations, we see just bits and pieces kind of, uh, of what um, these rules of conduct and the truths are about the spiritual realm, or I'm calling it the principles of the spiritual realm. So I have a lot of scriptures I'm going to refer to today, and, and I don't want to make it difficult for you to follow along, but I, I feel like it's important that I base what I'm saying on scripture and, and give you that scripture um, if, if you want to look it up for yourself, if you want to um, study it further. So you don't feel like you need to turn with me to every scripture, and, and I hope it doesn't make it too difficult for you to follow if I'm, I'm jumping from one place to another. This is, I guess, where, where a, one of the tools I use a lot in my study is, is, a, is Bible software and word searches and, and connecting you know, this passage with another passage that describes it from a different angle and so on. So it makes it easy to cover a lot of scriptures, to find a lot of, of uh, information about a topic, but it does require a lot of different scriptures to look at as well. I'd like to first of all talk about the operation of the Spirit of God and some basic um, truths and, and roles that, that the Spirit of God operates by, and then also of Satan and his evil spirits. And then I want to come back to this passage in Matthew chapter 12 and see what, what the warning is for us here. <clears throat> we believe that the Spirit of God is present everywhere, that he is not limited to time or to space. John chapter 4 verse 24 says that God is spirit. We, we also understand that when we're talking about the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God, that that Spirit is God. There's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, there's God the Father, and there's the Spirit, and, and they operate together because they are all one person. Just as, as each of us, I believe, have a Spirit within us, we can't see that, we can't really identify that, but it's who we are. We cannot disconnect that Spirit from who we are. So we cannot disconnect the Spirit of God from who God is. He is present everywhere. In Jeremiah 23, 23, it says, I am a God near at hand, uh, says the Lord. And not a God, am I not a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God far off? Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? So he's asking the question here is, can anyone hide from God? Can anyone go anywhere where he is hidden from them? No. God, his spirit is present everywhere. Isaiah 57, 15, for thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He inhabits eternity. He was there at creation. He was 
alive, real before creation, and he will always be. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, there it says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters before creation. We also know that God has angels, and they're also spiritual beings. They are his ministers, and from what we read in Scripture, they are available for God's service. They, they go to specific people. They go to specific places to um, do what God, what God wants them to do. They're his ministers. One example is Jesus at his crucifixion where he said that he could have called 12 legions of angels to come and assist him. He, of course, we know did not do that because that was not what he was called to do, what, what his heavenly father wanted him to do. But it shows us that the angels as spirits are available and, and they, unlike the spirit of God, are not everywhere at the same time, but they go to specific places, to specific people for a specific reason. <clears throat> we know that the spirit of God dwells in the heart of every believer. And as he dwells in the heart of believers, he is working for us. He is on our side, on God's side, and, and drawing us to God. Um, Ephesians, especially, um, I like the book of Ephesians and the way it talks about the Spirit, but it talks specifically about God the Father, God the Son, or Jesus Christ his Son, and the Spirit. And distinct individually um, describes different things about them, but, but at the same time, as you read, if you read that those um, couple chapters there in Ephesians especially, we see that there's all these different roles, but they blend together, the three in the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. <clears throat> I'd like to, um, I'm going to turn to Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. As we think about the Spirit being, dwelling in believers, um, it is a promise that is given to us that he will dwell in us. And I believe that every believer, every true believer, has the spirit of God dwelling in him. He is gifted to the believer. That's one point I especially want to notice here in Ephesians chapter 2. Um, Luke eleven thirteen says that he gives us the Holy Spirit. God gives us the Holy Spirit. And here in Ephesians chapter 2, um, specifically, want to notice verse 8. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now, that doesn't mention the Spirit. It's saving grace that is given to us as a gift from God. But that's an important part of understanding that the Spirit is a gift. It then says in verse 18, For through him, um, referring to Jesus Christ, we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. I like this verse because... There it shows us Jesus Christ, God the Father, and the Spirit, and how they work together. Through him, we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. The writer here is talking about the Jews and the Gentiles, and that's what he's referring to when he says both. All believers have access to the Father through Jesus Christ by the Spirit. I like to picture it in this way, and I think this is an accurate picture. This isn't necessarily taken from a verse, but... I see Jesus Christ as the door. If you picture God um, sitting on his throne 
and, but there's no access to him. There's like a wall around him. But in that wall, there is a door. And through that door, we have access to God the Father, through Jesus Christ. Um, but to find that door and, and to approach that door and to go through that door and then to, to follow that path to the Heavenly Father is where the Spirit comes in at. So the Spirit is like, the one who leads us, like our guide or, or the pathway that takes us to that door. We know that the Spirit is at work in the lives of unbelievers as well. There's, there's a dwelling in the believer, but he also has an influence upon the unbeliever. One place it says he convicts the world of sin. And without the conviction of sin, we cannot see our need of a Savior. So as, as we think about, think about approaching the door of Jesus Christ, the Spirit is the one who takes us there. He convicts us of sin, shows us that we need a Savior, and leads us to the Heavenly Father, and then dwells within us. Um, also, here in chapter 2, verse 22, then says, or 21 and 22, in whom, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So he's talking here to the church and saying, you as, as individuals together in a body, the church, you um, are the dwelling place of God in the spirit. <clears throat> Again, coming back to the fact that the spirit is given to us as a gift. It says here in chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God pre prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The Spirit is, we do not receive the Spirit by works, but are given the Spirit for works. So it's a gift that's given to us, and, but then it says we are his workmanship. We are, God is working in us through the Spirit to accomplish what he wants in chapter 1, verse 17 here of Ephesians, it's, it refers to the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And in my Bible, that word spirit is not capitalized, which, which makes me wonder, okay, what spirit is it referring to? Because generally, the Holy Spirit as a name is, is put in a capital letter. And I, I'm not sure exactly what the reason for that is, but in my understanding... I think it could be capitalized that that is referring to the spirit of God, the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So now the role of the spirit is to give us understanding. It's God allows us to understand what he wants us to understand by giving us his spirit. So he dwells within us. He's given to us as believers. He dwells within us. And, and even though the spirit is present everywhere, there's... The fact that he says we are the dwelling place of God in the spirit indicates that there's some special connection, relationship that believers have with the Holy Spirit or that the Holy Spirit has with believers. There's a special connection that unbelievers do not have, even though he influences their lives, even though he can lead them and direct them, and even though he is present everywhere, there's a dwelling place of God by his spirit in us. Romans 8, verse 16 says, the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. This too refers to this special connection of 
bearing witness, um, testifying or agreeing with us that we are the sons of God. And other places throughout the scripture, the Holy Spirit is described as a helper, a comforter, as one who gives power, he testifies of Christ, he leads into truth, he convicts of sin. All this shows us that the Spirit is working for us as believers in Christ. He is working for us. Another principle is uh, the Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. It says this, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as he has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then he goes on to say how we need to um, be separate. It's showing us here that the Spirit of God is in opposition to the evil spirits. Jesus, if you go back to Matthew chapter 12 there, where I read those three verses, um, the, the setting, what's taking place there, this conversation that Jesus is having, he, earlier on here, he defended himself. The, the Pharisees were accusing him of casting out demons by the power of um, Beelzebub. They say, if, uh, let me just find that verse there. Well, Jesus had just cast out a demon out of a man. I can't see it right now. But the Pharisees then accused him, you're not doing this by God's power. This is the power of the devil, the power of, of demons that you are doing this. And in defending himself, Jesus brings this out to them that, that the spirit of God is in opposition to the evil spirits. And, and if the spirit of the devil would be casting out the devil, he would destroy himself. Important part, important thing for us to realize is that the Spirit of God is in opposition, is absolutely in opposition to the evil spirits. They do not work together, they oppose each other. And the spirit that we will yield to will determine our actions. James chapter 3, verse 10 says, Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. I think what James is is bringing out there is that we as the dwelling place of God in the spirit as having the spirit within us we do still sin we still deal with the problem of sin and at times out of our mouth comes both blessing and cursing and he says it should not be like this but he re recognizes that that is what takes place sometimes the spirit of God mercifully does not leave us when that happens he does not leave us as soon as we sin. Sometimes we yield to the evil spirits, but the Spirit of God will help us in that battle. Uh, Romans 1 describes what God does with those who will continually reject him, and this should be sobering to us because it, it describes people who do come to the place where they have continually rejected God and, and it says that, that God will um, cast them out or um, turn them over to the evil, to, the, to Satan. Um, I don't think we'll take the time to, to go there and, and read all of that, but that's um, one passage of scripture that makes it very clear that th there is a point where the spirit of God will no longer 
dwell in a man will, will turn him over to evil and basically um, to destroy himself. <clears throat> so we see that the spirit is present everywhere, but he has a special connection with the believers. He dwells in us as believers, and he does that for the reason of, of helping us, of working for us, or, or, or um, fighting the battle with us. He's on our side. And that he is always in opposition to the evil spirits. The two cannot function in harmony. I want to then look at some principles of Satan and his evil spirits. Who is Satan and where did he come from? Satan also is a spirit. He does not dwell in a body, in the form of a body. Um, we often think of him as a fallen angel, and I, I think that's accurate. I'd like to read to you a number of verses that, that tell us where Satan, or at least indicate where he came from. This um, some of these are a little obscure, maybe. We're not exactly sure, but as I read these verses, I think we get a pretty good picture of who he is and where he came from. In Luke chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus said to his disciples after they went out and Jesus had given them a special power to cast out demons, and, and they came back to Jesus and, and basically were rejoicing that, you know, these these demons were subject to us. And Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Just one little phrase he puts in there. It gives us a little bit of indication of where he came from. Um, I will also read Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15. And if you look at the beginning of this chapter, it specifically says that this is talking about the king of Babylon. Now, in understanding these Old Testament scriptures and prophecies, we know that many times there's a double meaning. So take that into consideration. This, it does say um, in verse 4, I will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, and he goes on there, and I'll read a few of those verses. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground? You who, have, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. And in Ezekiel chapter 28, another Old Testament prophet speaking about, again, um, probably a double meaning here. Because again, it says this prophecy is to the prince of Tyre. 
Ezekiel 28, and I'll read 14 to 16. You who you were the anointed cherub who covers, I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. And I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. In Revelations 12, verse 7 to 12. Now we're looking at a prophecy of, or a revelation given to John of what would happen in the future. And especially notice here how many times it says, and I'm going to read three different passages here out of Revelations. How many times it says that Satan is cast down. We already read those two Old Testament verses um, where, where it seems to be speaking of that. Uh, we read where Jesus said he saw Satan like lightning fall from heaven. And now here in Revelations 12, 7 to 12. <clears throat> War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heaven, and you who dwell in them, woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Here we see the devil cast down to earth, and a woe pronounced on those on earth, because the devil is now there, <clears throat> and has great wrath, and he knows that he has a limited time and then revelations 20 verse 1 to 3 i saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand he laid hold of the dragon that serpent of old who is the devil and satan and bound him for a thousand years and he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Now we see him put at another location and locked up there for a period of time. And then verses 7 through 10 of the same chapter. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. 
They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Here we see Satan released, but then fire come down from heaven to devour him. And he is cast into the lake of fire for eternity. We realize here that Satan and his evil spirits are not present everywhere. We, we use that term um, omnipresent for God, like he is present everywhere. His spirit can be anywhere. He created the universe, so he has power of all of it. Satan is not omnipresent. He is not present everywhere. In Job, we read how that he walked to and fro on the earth, and then he came to God, and they had that conversation there. In Zechariah 3, the prophet sees a vision where he sees Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord and, the Satan, at, and Satan at his right hand to oppose him. Again, Satan is at a specific location, and he is limited in that way. <clears throat> when Satan's evil spirits are cast out of a person, that person changes. We see that over and over again in the Gospels where Jesus um, came and, and cast out evil spirits. The person changed. The, the, the spirit of Satan was no longer present there. Um, there's especially, I think, of that one account where, where the, the evil spirits begged Jesus to send them into a herd of swine. And, and we know what happened. The swine ran down a steep place and into the sea. Again, they're, they're in a certain location. Uh, we, we often don't think of them in that way because it's the spiritual world and we can't see it. But they're in a location and they are limited to where God allows them to go. They are under, that makes, brings us to the other point, that they're under the control of God. Again, the account of Job is, is um, a clear picture of this, that Satan was limited in what he could do. Um, he told God that you have a hedge around Job. There's, you know, there's only so much I can do to him. And, and I think Satan was challenging God that, you know, does, does Job really um, serve you or is it just because you, you're protecting him? Would he really choose to serve you? Um, and, and God gives Satan some more liberty there. Um, another example is Paul's thorn in the flesh. He says was a messenger of Satan to buffet me. And in 1 Corinthians 5, it says that the disobedient in the church are, be are to be turned over to Satan to destroy the flesh, but to save the soul. Those are examples of ways that we see that, that God um, uses or limits what Satan can do or, or allows him, actually, actually uses him for his own purpose. Satan and his evil spirits are on a mission to destroy what God has done. Just like the spirit dwells in us and works for us, Satan opposes God in every way. His mission is to destroy what God has done. And he schemes and plans to do this. He is intelligent. He is deceptive. And it says in one passage that he sometimes appears as an angel of light. He is deceptive. He schemes and plans to destroy what God has done. 
First Peter 5, 8 says that he walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. It gives us that word picture there of a lion hunting its prey, <clears throat> looking to devour. In Genesis chapter 4, God talks to Cain, and um, I'm going to turn there so I can quote that properly. So Cain and Abel both offered um, their offering to God, and it says that God did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, and you shall rule over it. There he gives the picture of sin or Satan, um, I may be thinking of another translation, but I, I'm thinking it gives the picture of um, sin crouching at the door. Is there maybe another translation that uses that word? I'm not quite sure. Here it says sin lies at the door and its desire is for you. It's like it's waiting there for that opportunity. As creatures of limited power and presence, Satan and his demons do, however, increase in number at times in, in an apparent attempt to increase their, their, um, their force or their influence. And as it says here in, in Matthew 12, where the spirit leaves this man, the evil spirit leaves this man and then comes back with seven more. Mary Magdalene, it says, had seven demons in her that were cast out. And in that, that country of the Gadarenes, there were Jesus cast the demons out of a man, and they went into the herd of swine. It says that there was, the, the, well, Jesus asked the demon what his name is. He said, Legion, because we are many. So we know that Satan's evil forces can increase in number. The same is also true for the angels of God. Like Jesus said, he could have called 12 legions of angels. Sometimes there was one angel that came to a person for a specific reason. Sometimes there was many <clears throat> The spirits, both good and evil, are at the disposal of their master to accomplish their purpose. Satan is not omnipresent. He is under the control of God. He is limited. But he is on a mission to destroy what God has done. Now let's turn back to Matthew chapter 12. What is the warning for us here in this passage? I'll read it again. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. And Jesus, when he says that last phrase there, this wicked generation, is referring to the scribes and Pharisees, to those who were rejecting him, who had the opportunity to put their faith in him, but were choosing over and over again to reject him. The warning here is that we do not leave room for the devil, and that attempts at 
a form of holiness without Christ leaves us vulnerable. I think of the example of Judas, Judas Iscariot. It says that Satan entered into him there at the Last Supper. When he chose to do what he was going to do, Satan entered into him. We know that previous to this, he was, uh, it tells us that he was not an honest man. So there was sin creeping into his life. And I, from my understanding of scripture, I believe that Judas, in betraying Jesus, thought that Jesus would find a way out of this. I don't know that for sure, but it seems that way to me. So Judas, you could say, did this um, in betraying Jesus without the intent to have Jesus destroyed. But he was gradually turning himself over, um, rejecting God, and, and, and looking out for only himself. <clears throat> and yet he was one of Jesus' disciples. Perhaps he was a little like the man that is described here, where there was empty space there. And Satan entered into him. To the degree that we are filled with the Spirit of God, we also hinder the work of the devil in our lives. I think that's the warning it's giving us here, that our lives be filled with the Spirit. And that we not give place to the devil. Ephesians 4.27 says that. Neither give place to the devil. And 2 Timothy chapter 4 refers to those who have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. We are to be filled with the Spirit of God. We already know that he dwells in the believer and that he wants to work for us. He is therefore our good. How then are we filled? That's a term that is used often in Scripture, being filled with the Spirit. And, and sometimes it's a little hard for us maybe to wrap our minds about what, to, what does that really mean? What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? I'd like to suggest to you three ways that we can be filled with the Spirit, that we can allow that Spirit to work in our lives, to fill us, and, and in that way, not give place to the devil, not allow room for the devil and his spirits to be at work in us. I don't necessarily have scripture verses to, um, and these three points I have, but I'd like for you to think about this. Um, number one is a God consciousness or an, an awareness of God in our lives. So as we choose to follow Christ, he gives us his spirit, he dwells within us, he is present with us. But how much do we think about that on a daily basis? That God is dwelling within us. A God consciousness. How much do we think about that when we're out on the job, when we're interacting with people, when um, whatever we do throughout the day, in our hobbies, in our, in our home, how aware are we of God's presence? God is everywhere. His spirit is everywhere. He can see everything. God is with us. He knows what we are doing. He knows what our thoughts are. He knows what's on our smartphones. He knows what is in our heart. He knows what our motives are. How aware are we of that? And we also need to then 
teach this to our children and, and to people around us, an awareness of God, to talk about him. How often have you been in the presence of somebody who's using a lot of bad language or the, the just curses and, and uses a lot of bad language? And when they become aware that you are a godly person and they apologize for that or, or they don't use, they use different language. That's a God awareness that we should carry with us uh, everywhere we go. Number two is a love for the word of God. This is how God has revealed himself to us. And the word of God is what the spirit wants to direct us towards. And he uses, he gives us understanding in God's word. A love for the word of God will help us to be filled with the spirit. Again, it's just, it's habits that we develop. It, it's disciplines. It's, it's taking the word and, and seeking to understand it. Using it on a daily basis. And the third one is obedience, submission, and humility. God dwells with those who are of a humble heart, with those who are obedient and are willing to submit to him. The Holy Spirit can fill our lives when we are obedient, submissive, and humble. Satan would like us to become numb to the awfulness of evil. And the terrible destination where he and his demons and all those who serve him will spend eternity. The world, we see this happening. Satan wants us to be numb to how. How awful the evil is. We can so easily. Um, just get used to what the world presents to us. We should not be ignorant of the devil and his schemes. Now, we don't want to study him in the way that we study who God is, but the Bible does give us, tell us things about Satan, things that we should know. We should not be ignorant of this. Resisting evil will be a losing battle without the presence of Christ in us in the form of his Holy Spirit. Just like this passage in Matthew brings out that the empty house was an invitation for the evil spirit to return. And not by himself, but with seven other spirits more wicked than him. Resisting evil will be a losing battle unless we are filled with the presence of Christ. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that your word speaks to us, that you have revealed to us all that we need to know. There, though, um, there are things we don't always understand, especially as we look into the spiritual world, into eternity and what the future holds, but you have, we believe, revealed all that we need to know for life and godliness. You have showed us a glimpse of who Satan is and how he operates. You've also shown us that your spirit is given to us and empowers us and enables us to live for you. 
I pray that we would seek to be filled with your spirit. We would allow you to dwell in us, that your light and your goodness would radiate out of our lives. People around us would be aware of your presence, that your word would become more and more precious to us, and that we would not allow the world to make us numb to the awfulness of evil. Thank you for the promise that your spirit will never leave us, forsake us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.